0: Chapter 19, Artificial Limbs Functionalist Cynicisms 2 On the Spirit of Technology Goethe intervenes At first it was uninjured survivors who began to sing the neo-humanist lamentation about modern alienation and the mutilation of the individual. On the opposed side, Chemical vitalists like the Young brecht the Dada groups and many others tried through their sarcasm to outdo the degradation of the individual that had become apparent in the modern social order. They practiced the accusation or the affirmation of mechanized existence as a figure of thought. To the physically alienated, the mutilated and the reassembled, such forms of expression remained in either direction rather alien. It makes a difference whether one reflects on the loss of individuality as a critique of culture or experiences how war or labour tears away pieces from one's own indivisible, quote unquote, indivisible body. One source of war statistics says, quote, 13 million dead, 11 million crippled, 6 billion shells, and 50 billion cubic metres of gas in four years, end quote. How did the armies of cripples who streamed back to their native countries in 1918 fare? Some, in any case, could say nothing about the reassembling of humans in modernity. They no longer had mouths. Quoting Eric Kessner's Fabian, 1931, page 49, Men with frightening faces, without noses, without mouths, Nurses who shrank back from nothing fed these disfigured creatures through thin glass tubes that had poked into the scarred holes of proud flesh where once a mouth had been. What Kessner describes refers to the year 1931. Fifteen years after the war, its victims still lay in endless agonies. These creatures, however, were hidden far away in the provinces and lonely houses. Away from the surrounding world that had long since begun to rearm. For those who had been maimed in this way, the war could not really end, even when they did not belong to those disfigured ones who had to be fed through glass tubes. The organ of the mutilated was Der Reichsverband, the Reich Association, organ of the Reich Association of German war injured and war bereaved. Uh, That was inside a parenthesis. I'll read the sentence without the parentheses. The organ of the mutilated was Der Reichsverband, published in Berlin regularly from 1922 on. That in this periodical voices were also raised that pleaded for a war of revenge against France as soon as possible may appear to us today as a tragic curiosity. The injured and bereaved experienced in a doubly bitter way how the economic crisis that began in 1929 reduced the, in any case, meagre compensation from the state, or even threatened to cut it off altogether. The situation becomes especially acute in 1931 when the emergency decrees of Brüning led to a led to radical cuts in state expenditures, which provoked the Reich Association to the most emphatic protests. One can ask oneself how many votes of mutilated survivors were among those Hitler's party was able to attract in its enormous crisis constituency in 1932. Two things were recommended to the mutilated survivors by the standard psychotechnical technical A will to live as hard as steel, and the training of the body to handle artificial limbs. The optimism with which those teachers of the maimed imbued their charges with a positive attitude and a vital joy in their continued work seems today like a parody. With deadly earnest, grimly humorous, patriotic doctors turned to the cripples. The fatherland requires your services in the future, too. One-armed, one-legged men and wearers of artificial limbs can fight again on the production front. The great machine does not ask whether it is, quote, individuals, end quote, who are here active for it, or units of human and artificial limbs. A man is a man. In the textbooks of the maimed and the writings of the medical technical industry, a highly apposite image of the human being emerges. Homo prostheticus, who is supposed to say a wildly joyful yes to everything that says no to the individuality of individuals. I quote from a one-armed primer from 1915, which, owing to the tremendous increase of one-armed among the war-maimed, had to be reprinted within a month, whose author notes with satisfaction that the influx of new one-armers from the front has given the old one-armers new energies. Privatdozent von Kunzberg writes, and. Here is a very long quote. The oldest German hero's song, the song of Waltharai, Walthari, relates the duel of the hero with Hagen, in which Volta loses his right hand. He binds it, sticks the stump into the straps of his shield, and simply fights on with the left hand. That such a sense of heroism is still alive today in our armies is shown by a small newspaper report from the beginning of June 5th, 1915. In the first attack of the Austrian fleet on the Italian coast, torpedo boat 80 had been hit by a shell in the officer's mess, and the right forearm of a reservist, a fisherman by profession, was completely torn off. He bound the stump with a strap and with the left hand worked the pump in order to stem the flood of water without letting out a single cry. There are innumerable such brave men among our military grey and blue boys. Whoever has done his share with two sound arms in the field against the enemy will be able to master his fate and himself with one arm. The present booklet wants to show him that one-armedness is not the worst thing by a long shot. How favourably the war wounded is situated. The honorary pay protects him once and for all from real need. But what a joyless existence would await him if he could not find his way back to work. Idleness is the source of all vices. Work is the duty of a citizen, a contribution to the fatherland. Even the single working hand cannot be done without. After a diligent stay at a school, some get on better than they did before the injury. You have nothing to hide. We no longer live in times when one could suspect a perjurer or thief behind a handless man. You have lost your hand, not under the hatchet of a henchman, but in a holy struggle. You are allowed to be always and everywhere proud. Look everyone straight in the eye, and thereby cause wretches and the tactless to blush. Most people view the war-injured person as a living monument of our hard times to whom they give thanks silently. To gain independence in every respect is the first commandment. The highest aim of the one-armed man. Never allow yourself to be helped. There must not be any activity from which he shrinks back. Through continual practice he will master it. One-armedness will become a matter of course. It loses the horror of a loss that cannot be overcome. Some experienced one-armers say that they would not know what to do with a second arm if suddenly, through a miracle, they were given back the lost arm. Look around you to see if there is someone in your circle of acquaintances who has been missing an arm for a time. There are probably some in every town, you just have not noticed them yet. In one of von Kurtzberg's footnotes there is also this, quote from the same source. You observe also the bagpipe player at the annual fair who simultaneously beats the drum with an elbow, works another instrument with his foot, or a mounted kettle drummer who controls the reins with his feet, etc. You can also learn something by observing animals. The joyful cynicism of patriot medicine does not touch solely on quote-unquote hardship cases. Its ways of thinking is not related solely to exceptional existential circumstances. Medical artificial limbs and the mentality of their robust robot, which is offered along with them only, being a widespread way of thinking to light, Medical artificial limbs, and the mentality of the robust robot, which is offered along with them only, bring a widespread way of thinking to light. War loosens the tongue of the latent cynicism of domination, medicine, and the military. Under its influence, the military and production apparatuses admit their claim to use up the lives of individuals in their service. The human body and the society of labor and war had already long been an artificial limb even before one had to replace damaged parts with functioning parts. In the Weimar years, technology presses in on the old humanism in a provocative way. In this period, the conceptual association of the human being and technology becomes a compulsive connection, from the heights of bourgeois philosophy down to school essays. The schema for thinking is this, technology takes the quote-unquote upper hand at quote-unquote threatens to degrade human beings. It quote-unquote wants to make us into robots. But if we pay attention and keep our souls in shape, nothing will happen to us. For technology is, after all, there for people, and not people for technology. The image is approximately that of a seesaw. On one end sits the threatening, the alien, technology. On the other, the humane spreads out, and according to whether one's self or the alien presses harder, the seesaw falls to one side or the other. The more immature the thinking, the heavier the humane end. With this phraseology, the bourgeois philosophy of technology erected an almost all encompassing cartel of brains. Minds are nimbly provided with mental, artificial, quote unquote, limbs about technology, with elegant, easy care light metal legs quote pure german model unquote thinking hobbles along behind reality and thus personality as well as soul are kept in operation as usual the bourgeois philosophy of technology thoroughly breathes in the spirit of the one-armed primer personality amputated no problem we have another one for you in stock quoting by Trager to Frager de ausrustung armsverletzte Kriegsbeschädigte für das Erwerbsleben. Erwerbsleben, 1915, page 127. You see, ladies and gentlemen, doctors and first aid helpers, engineers and manufacturers, military posts and the officers of our emergency services all strive in the same way to place their experience at the service of our cause and to replace the loss of hand and arm. For those who have fought and suffered for the continued existence and greatness of the fatherland and for the injured the poet's words are apt whoever always strives to make an effort can be redeemed by us reduced to a formula the topic of the bourgeois philosophy of technology in the 20s and 30s is goethe with machines or at least Zarathustra and industry. Even the privileged now come across the problem of alienation, or as Hans Freyer says drastically, quote, the uprising of the slave means against the ends. End quote. More reflective authors no longer want to leave it at a mere conservative no to technology. In departing from the erstwhile sensitive repugnance, bourgeois thinking about technology converts to a downright masochistic enthusiasm. The philosophy of the new matter-of-factness, insofar as it is engineer's philosophy, tries out a hectic embracing of the new discomfort. Hans Freyer, for example, Hans Freier, hmm. suspects deeper connections between technology and the quote-unquote human being not only the old town, the traditional village, the developed pre-industrial cultural landscape of Europe are subjected to destructive attacks by the new technology. An even older image of the human being or model of the soul now collapses. Freya was by no means the only one who called the master human relation of the European technologist to the earth the quote, spiritual foundation of quote unquote, our technology. However, only in the present. Where the enormous, quote, system of means, end quote, penetrates every activity of life, can Europeans no longer escape the experience of themselves as, quote unquote, rulers? And here a quote from H Freer's, zur Philosophie der Technik, in Blätter für Deutsche Philosophie, volume 3, Berlin, 1929-30, page 200. Violent questioning of nature in order to learn how to direct its forces, pondering over the earth in order to conquer and shape it this will uh, this will stirs itself early in the European spirit, and it is this that guaranteed the continuity and the successes of the technology that since the beginning of the eighteenth century have finally come to be based on science. What freer expresses sounds reflective in tone, affirmative in substance, thus we are dominant subjects and as Europeans we have always been so. Where the conservative denial stops, the neo-matter-of-fact flight forward into a programmatic confession begins. Where the conservative denial stops, the neo-matter-of-fact flight forward into a pragmatic confession begins. What Freya still holds intelligently in suspense, steps onto hard ground with the philosopher of brutality, Theodor Ludecker. He turns fresh cynicism into the procedure of his talk. In 1931 he published his book on technology, Meisterung der Maschinenwelt, Menschentum und Möglichkeit, the mastering of the world of machines, humankind, and possibility. Ludecker's ideal is. Quote, organic cultivation, end quote. And, the word, and in the word organic, he intends a whole range of undertones, from the Gertian original forms up to the organs of power and the organization of the militarized community of the people. Quoting the same text from page 240. The first condition of an organic cultivation is the employment of the apprentice principle in education, as Henry Ford called it. The young person must grow up from youth onward in a scuffle with realities. The most damaging factor in the existing system of education is that the young person is made too sensitive. Sport, pardon me, sport offers only an insufficient balance against this. Quoting page 242. Urban pupils in particular lack the organic concepts of life and labour. We must educate strong-nerved adaptable people who are really at home in their times. In this way, we will come up to a new aristocracy composed of honest, heroic fighters. This idea of discipline should also stand at the fore of the duty to work. Here, send students of economics for four weeks into the mines so that they, quote, develop on the spot the capacities of a respectable miner, end quote, from page 248. Bring pupils into the banks before the theory of money is explained to them. Make intellectual workers familiar with the hard facts on the quote-unquote production front. One has to read some passages of Ludecker several times to make sure that he really argues from the right. His clammy, joyful anti-academicism could easily be confused with joyful science, theory fatigue and the hunger for concreteness of today's left intelligentsia if it were not for the fact that the author takes care to set a clear order with appropriate signal words. A whole series of quotes here from pages 248, 249, 215, 217. The intellectual knows too little about the people who fight as soldiers on the battlefront of production. The intellectual battlefield on which he moves is a bourgeois camp. We want to give the socialists credit for one thing. They have made the concept bourgeois unsavoury for us. For the young generation, bourgeois means the same as unheroic, feeble, anxious. A thoroughly sportsmanly, hard kind of a man is no longer bourgeois. With the help of the typically academic way of thinking, a grain battle will never be fought, as Mussolini was able to do. The thinking of the great activist is always straightforward and simple. And on the sports field and in the imagination of youth, the aggressive man who is master of the situation lives as inspiring character type. In the daily shopkeeper existence of the civilization, however, the artfully calculating, soft-stepping bourgeois who denies everything directly heroical reigns. That is socialism. Socialism is a new vital force, a philosophy of labor, a transferring of principles and sport to occupational activity a new tone of solid comradeship. The Marxist revolution, it is, above all, a question of having or not having. Our revolution, however, is a question of being and wanting to be better. Our gospel is precisely the quick thought and the quick realisation of every thought. (coughs) Pardon me. Ludecker develops a philosophy of the enthusiastic artificial limb that experiences its being in the intoxication of movement. Because it steals from quote-unquote progressive discourse, the text is subversive, a reading must be all the more so. In its language, existential motifs of the left can be found, staged by a right-wing ego. Homo prostheticus, as a stormtrooper, itching for action, as an exploiter of himself. From this viewpoint, a diagnostic potential flits through Ludecker's theory and programmes anti-capitalist motifs into a capitalist-military ego. As far as an ethics of labour is concerned, its prescribed optimism blends in with the morals of management in the West today, as well as with the ought attitude of quote-unquote really existing socialism. Nothing of content remains of specifically fascist elements. The ideology of fitness today, denazified, is as rampant as it was then, while the ethics of being is counterposed, as always, to those of having. The composition and the dynamic gesture remains fascist, in which everything, mixed together incoherently, is rasped down by a resourceful subject in the fresh, cynical tone of the likeable Nazi. The Nazi philosopher is the nimble, frivolous mixer of language, the drummer of functionalism who employs everything that quote-unquote works and who cheers up the people who are following him. One of the secrets of fascism's success is to be found in this tone. It employs truth as a decoy and amiability as bait. At the volatile centre of its agitation lies the intimate complicity with the instincts for self-preservation in the confused masses. Its revolution promises complete quote unquote superiority to the sportsman like prosthetic subject. Fascism appears here as the uprising of the prosthesis egos against liberal civilization, in whose disorder they at least still had a small chance of being themselves. In a violent flight to the fore, they outdo the system from which they arise. The secret of their self-preservation is hidden in the total abolition of everything that ever reminded one of self. National socialism established itself as a national functionalism. The brisk prosthesis of the new state needed nursing, and the relaxation of tension. It was supposed to find both on the fascist holiday. The sea was always good for uplifting thoughts even for Nazi eminences seeking recuperation. On the beach, one can reflect even better on the goerter of the machines. I quote some lines from Kurt Schuder's book of 1940. Granite und Herz. Die Straßen Adolf Hitlers. Ein Dombau unserer Zeit. Granite and heart, Adolf Hitler's roads. A cathedral construction of our times. Braunschweig. Quoting page 7. In the summer of 1938, I was in Westerland. You have to imagine Westerland as a place where you can find almost everything you are looking for recuperation, rest, the spicy North Sea air, and just as spicy and benevolently stern the North Sea waves which develop that famous surf that is such a welcome gift to every guest on the North Sea. Among them, important and intellectually influential men from throughout Germany can be found. They know what little time they have for recuperation can best be spent at the seaside which as far as health is concerned always proves itself to be more than a time saver there shooter mentor met an quote-unquote influential man with whom he was able to speak about quote two great cultural manifestations in the people technology and industry end quote and quote-unquote spiritual life the unquote influential man had quote unquote creative views on these topics that the author attempts to summarize a series of quotes here from pages eight nine ten twelve and fourteen the deed is first and last the deed is the sole true content of human life the deed is of course also the most difficult thing for it demands courage We technicians who begin with the substances have to wed our spirits to the substances. By the way, Goethe was one of the greatest technicians of all time, quoting Gruthers. If one proceeds from the spiritual foundation of technology, he even foresaw the electrical television. Instead of sounding battle together, as Goethe did, we have marched divided and the remarkable figures of spirit only and technology only resulted, to put it briefly. And without this comradeship with the machine, no person could live today, to say nothing of a people. It serves and serves again. In it, we have to honor the thought of serving as such. This serving, however, is the highest ethical idea indeed, and so the machine converts this idea into deed. Of course, iron is hard, and the machine is not made out of sugar. But the law of life is steel and not sugar, not porridge and puree. And only the heart and the soul made of steel achieve life. The machine is thus thoroughly in accord with the human being. The thing that corresponds to the human essence. Only when we create this inner connection have we overcome the curse of the world. Materialism. And this is indeed one of the great achievements of the new Germany. The introduction of technology into the soul. So that it no longer has to stand outside freezing. The technician spoke at length, and penetratingly, and refreshed as if by a Chalabiat bath. I go to the beach, breathe the sea air in blissfully, that likewise refleshes the lungs like steel. With unheard of explicitness, the reshaping of human self-experience under the guiding star of the functional relation of the machine is recommended here as the fascist way into modernity. The self-reflection of the living and steel and of feeling and hardness at the same time forms the basis for the cynical readiness of those philosophers of hardness to confess. They say everything now, but not so as to correct themselves, not to become soft and to think, themsel- and to think things over again. They seem not to notice that with every word they give themselves away. They talk as if they were confessing, but without a single spark of insight. They admit everything so as not to compromise in anything. They want to become what their comrade the machine already is, men of steel. If images can convey something of the attitude towards life and political style, then the expressions Hitler's stirrup holder, Alfred Hugenberg, chose in 1928 betray everything about what is to come. Quoting Berliner Locker Lokalanzieger. 26-28 August 1928. What we need is not a mush, but a solid block. In a mush we will perish. With the block, victory and reconstruction is a trifle. We will be a block when the iron clamp of Veltinchaung binds us together and in its embrace causes everything soft and fluid to solidify and coalesce into rock. Those who could hinder us on the way to the goal must step aside or allow themselves to be melted down. Excursus for the Fourth Reich before the Third. In 1927, a Frankfurt philosophy professor, Friedrich Dessauer, presented a book called Philosophie de Technik*, Das Problem de Realisierung, Philosophy of Technology, the Problem of Realization, in which he promised a, quote, critical metaphysics, end quote, of technology. He turned against his technology luddites who in a merely superficial defense regard technology as a parvenu of our civilization Dessauer pursued the transition that runs through the epoch like a main theme from resistance to affirmation from resentment to positive understanding affirmation itself constitutes the core of technical knowledge quoting pages 40 to 41 humankind can fly but not because it, say, denies or suspends gravitation, but by penetrating it in an intellectual process and, expressed pictorially, coming to the other side of the matter. On the first side it is its servant, on the other its master. Thus gravitation is overcome, not denied. Complete affirmation of everything that corresponds to the laws of nature and an unswerving persistence in the framework of what is given by the laws of nature characterise the means. the affirmation of the so-called laws of nature serves the interest of controlling them if they are controlled they can serve human goals when desauer calls for an affirmation of technology this means the affirmation of affirmation domination of the means of domination in the double yes the steel subject of the future stirs it is inseparable from an increased domination by this subject of itself For this reason, the master's theory of that period talks incessantly of heroism. This means nothing other than increased self-coercion. The rhetorics of courage here mean to risk a higher degree of self-mashing. A quote from the General Inspector for the German Road System, Berlin, February 1940. Concrete and stone are material things, man gives them form and spirit. National socialist technology possesses in all material achievement, ideal content. The machine, for its part, emits a yes to its inventor as soon as the latter sees that it quote-unquote works, as soon as as it has quote-unquote stepped into existence. It possesses a particular ontic quality. It embodies something that did not occur in nature but now exists because the spirit of invention has made it like a new shape in creation Quote, we are in the middle of a day of creation that quote from page 52 what does the fourth Reich mean uh, quote here from pages 55 and 56 Kent with a consciousness of an all encompassing view of the world distinguished three realms from one another the first is that of natural science he called the work critique of pure reason how is natural science possible is the key question that opens the way he gives the answer through the forms of contemplation time and space and through the equally a priori forms of understanding the categories through which it works up experience on the basis of this mental equipment natural science, as knowledge of appearances is possible he discovers the second realm in the experience of ethical law, that omnipotent, unconditional, categorical imperative that places the will direction. Uh, I apologise. That omnipotent, unconditional, categorical imperative that gives the will direction. Theoretical reason of the first realm cannot enter this realm. Here, the higher, practical reason reigns that opens up the supersensuous of the life of the will. In Kant's ordering, the borders separate the first realm completely from the second. But is such a separation bearable? Kant himself forced an opening through. In the third realm, it is a matter of feeling, of the subjugation of the objects of experience to the goal by means of the power of judgment. This is the aesthetic and functional realm. But one would try in vain to find in Kant enlightenment about the dimension that cuts most deeply into the life of the present. In the fourth realm, Reich, we enter a new land that opens up technology to us. The fourth Reich is that of inventions, those things that have been brought into existence only by human beings, the immeasurable potential of what can still be invented and realized. According to Dessauer, technology means nothing other than to call the slumbering shapes of the Fourth Reich into reality through invention. It is as if technology reached over into the sphere of the ding an sich, the thing in itself, which according to Kant is inaccessible to us, in order to create out of the sphere previously non-existing objects of experiences, machines. The machine however is no ding an sich. No creature out there whose possibility of existence cannot be reached by any understanding, but rather is there through us. At the same time, what functions in it is not only from us, there is in it a quote, power that does not come from me, that quote from Dessauer, page 60. World revolutionising power can be imminent, imminent with an A, in inventions. Dessauer refers, for example, to the ontological puzzle of X-rays which, although a material natural phenomenon, can be produced only by human intervention. They constitute a new form of energy that did not previously exist. Inventions of this quality are ontological enrichments in the inventory of existence, whereby humanity is allotted the role of co-author of the existing. Through humanity, creation augments itself. Nature provides only the material for the human being of the pre-given into a technical supernature. Everything invented and built by human beings, however, encounters humanity from the outside like a power of nature. A quote from The Greatest Earthly Experience of Mortal Beings, pages 65 and 66. Like mountains, the Gulf Stream, people have to react. Whoever lives in the mountains lives in accord with the mountains. The power of technology is thus. The power of newly created forms of technology possesses basically the same autonomy as the creation of a mountain, a river, an ice age, or a planet. This fact intensifies the already disturbing extent of our continuing creation to which we are witnesses, and even more in which we participate. It is a monstrous fate to be an active participant in creation, in such a way that things have been created by us, remain in the visible world, having an effect with an unimaginable autonomous power. This philosophy of technology pretends to be heroically optimistic because it conceives of humanity as the ongoing creator of the cosmos. It is never allowed to resign before the overpowering misery but must bring more and more new shapes out of that fourth rake in which the solutions of all urgent problems already stand ready slumbering and only quote-unquote await their discovery thus beside nature there grows a quote dynamically pulsating metacosmos, end quote quote-unquote created by human beings do we have to point out the absurd aspects of this philosophy Its deception, once again, lies in the concept of the subject. The subject's heroism is nothing other than the refusal to conceive any distress or suffering as its quote-unquote own. The ego becomes heroic because it is too cowardly to be weak. It quote-unquote sacrifices because it hopes to gain something. Technology thus appears as the premise of a total solution to problems. One day, the philosopher implies, technology will have worked off all misery, In an astoundingly short-sighted way, he overlooks the destructive aspect of invention. The fighting subject made of heroism and steel has to be blind to its own destructiveness. The more it threatens to break under the massive suffering of the technical dominated world, the more optimistically it stimulates the heroic pose. The more optimistically it simulates the heroic pose. At the heart of this theory stands a subject who can no longer suffer because it has become holy prosthesis excursus five total prosthesis and technical surrealism a diagnostic history Let me try that again. A diagnostic history of ideas owes a great deal to that cynical garrulousness of historical persons, from whom an inner urge and the external compulsion of crisis force out statements that better controlled individuals would never let pass their lips. Often they are screwballs who prefer to speak when so called normal people think it cleverer to be silent. One of these compulsive talkers who super cleverly revealed something that otherwise nobody would be able to uncover so easily is the quote unquote expressionist philosopher, Scholem Adrian Turell. In 1934, he published, under the sign of a new German spirit, a ludicrous book Technocracy, Autarchy, Genetocracy. Technocracy, Autarchy, Genocracy. I think that reader's note, I think that means gene as in genetics. Genitocracy? Genetocracy? Sloterdijk's neologisms confound. Um, okay, a ludicrous book in which curious, detailed knowledge combines with megalomaniacal, expansive perspectives to form a mysterious, idiosyncratic speculation. No conventional categorization can be applied to this text. It is neither monograph, nor essay, nor theorem, nor manifesto. It is a singular document of a theoretical surrealism. It eludes all classification. Its tone is serious and pompous, at the same time non-committal in its apparently playful inclination to combine the most disparate things. Statements about nomadic and agrarian existence slide over as in a game into thoughts of industrialism, metallurgy and quantum theory, climatology and the philosophy of time, sub zero physics and astronomy, from the Aurignac cave dwellers to mathematical description of geopolitical power structures, at this market fair of a confused intellect in which Turrell, like an Achtenbusch, Achternbusch. Uh, There's a footnote here explaining that Achternbusch is a German film director. Okay. Uh, For the philosophy of history, calls out his insights. Rare gems are to be found. Combinations of prosthesis theory and philosophy of technology that cause one to prick up one's ears. Quoting page 34. Technology is only a prosthesis. The labour we employ in technology is never anything else than a great offloading of compulsions to surrender our authentic essence in order to grasp the zones and concerns of other kinds of essences without thereby also having to give up our humanness, our germanness. Two real dreams, insanely realistically, of a new level of Western technocracy that secures for itself, quote, as a class of generals and leaders, end quote. A total domination over the strivings of the rest of the world to catch up he's referring in particular to japan which according to turrell has already stolen european models of thinking prostheses technologies only that would be the quote social psychology of the coming age end quote and a long quote here from pages 59 and 60. Philosophy itself in processing thought models elevates itself to a bold system of prostheses that will be indispensable in the future, and that is to be placed beside the prosthetic system of the airplane, the submarine, the automobile, etc., as at least their equal. If it is a fact that we will no longer be able to protect our great blanket patent of our technical and scientific prosthetic system from the clutches of the second zone, and in the foreseeable future also the third zone, author's note, today we would say the second and third worlds, quite independently of whether we ourselves betray the, the methods of fabrication to these zones, then, on the other hand, it is not to be forgotten that we, out of ourselves, produce, create, at least an enormous new increase in the style of prosthesis produced by machine to date, which can be called globally the total prosthesis of a technical kind. This technical prosthetic system, which is typically masculine achievement, can only be compared with the prenatal, complete enclosure in the body of the mother. All people, no matter of what sex, were initially, in their prenatal period, caught in the great prototype of of every nourishing landscape, every protective sphere, every prison, uh, every prison too, i.e. they have experienced the enclosure in the body of a mother. The masculine counterpart to this is the development of technocratic prostheses, of power, of financial power and of the technical apparatuses for a complete capsule system in which people, in which individual people seem to be enclosed for better or worse. When the British fly over the Himalayas to the total prostheses of their fighter planes and do so completely systematically with entire squadrons, that is no crazy record-setting, nor is it money-out-the-window but rather it is for all India a symbol of the superior prosthetic power of Britain and Europe. How confused does a thinker have to be to see so clearly? Madness sees through the method completely. For the rest, those who cannot follow Turul can console themselves with Jersham Scholem's analysis. He knew the author personally and, as early as the 20s, Quote, understood literally not one word, end quote, of his utterance, of his utterances. That quote from von Berlin nach Jerusalem, pages 157 to 58.